In this episode, we're chatting to the very passionate Angus Gorey from The Outsiders, Play Advocates, all about the evolutionary perspective of loose parts and the problematic nature of titling it Risky and or Nature Play. Welcome to Raising Wildlings, a podcast about parenting, alternative education, and stepping into the wilderness, however that looks, with your family. Each week, we'll be interviewing experts that truly inspire us to answer your parenting and education questions. We'll also be sharing stories from some incredible families that took the leap and are taking the road less travelled. We're your hosts, Vicky and Nikki from Wildlings Forest School. Pop in your headphones, settle in, and join us on this next adventure. Before we start, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded, the Kabi Kabi and Gubby Gubby people. We honour their songlines and storylines and pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which you are listening to this episode today. Hello and welcome to the Raising Wildlings podcast. I'm your host, Nikki Farrell. Now, as a play worker and play advocate, Angus Gorey is passionate about providing authentic play opportunities for children wherever they may be and pushing back against increased play deprivation and play bias. Angus has qualifications in behavioural and social sciences and play work and spends his days with the team at The Outsiders who are committed to champion authentic free play experiences for children. As a practitioner working in a large adventure playground at Camp Hill Outside School Hours Care here in southeast Queensland, the Outsiders practice what they preach in the field. Angus and the team at the Outsiders spend their days championing authentic free play experiences for children in a large adventure playground at Camp Hill Out of School Hours Care right here in southeast Queensland. It's a service known for its cutting edge application of genuine free play and play work principles into daily practice. By appointment, the Outsiders offer information and practical stories that delve deeper into the realms of play, play theory, and the many developmental benefits that surround it. The team provides real-life stories married with theory to inspire more play journeys. But before we start, we wanted to let you know that we have finally just had a huge shop restock in our online store. As you're all probably aware, shipping and logistics has been absolutely chaotic over the past few years, and we've not been able to get some of our best-selling stock in since October last year. So we're very happy to say that things seem to be flowing again and that we've been able to restock some but not all of our favourites, but we do have many, many more big shipments coming in over the next two to three weeks. So if you're looking for a birthday gift for your wildling, why not head over to our shop at wildlingsforestschool.shop. Welcome to the show, Angus. Thanks so much for joining us. How have you gone this week personally and, and Camp Hill in the floods? Yeah, no, thanks for having me on, Nikki. Um, look, it's been interesting. Camp Hill itself, as the name probably indicates, is quite high on, <laughs> on an actual hill. So we were fine as far as the service actually goes. Obviously, everyone still was off work for a couple of days and that was actually necessary. A few people more personally were affected mm-hmm. um, where they live in um, you know, flooded basements and all sorts of stuff. So it is what it is. It's... Um, just another it feels like it's just another thing in a sequence of things though doesn't it (laughs) oh it it has been a heavy week hasn't it news wise and whatnot and I think I think we thought we had it pretty bad and then as that storms traveled further south I'm just so grateful we just got really 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 wet and and not worse like it's happening further down south 
Yeah, no, it looks pretty wet. I saw um, a call out from the Lismore Kindergarten actually lost everything, so all mm-hmm. play resources um, in general. So, um, yeah, if anyone's feeling charitable, that's one to check out, but I'm sure there's lots of other people in, um, in need as well. Yeah, there was a bunch of it, particularly in Lismore, and I know the whole of the you know Northern Rivers region was affected, but there's a um, couple of First Nations, um, I guess, predominant suburbs there and, and are uninsured with their houses as mm. well and living on a floodplain. So there's a couple of First Nations charities too doing call-outs for baby clothes and food. So, yeah, like you said, if people can give anything, $5 as a meal, that would be amazing. Yeah, Absolutely. So, Angus, can you tell us all about how the Outsiders, well, let's start there. Let's just start with how did the Outsiders begin? Yeah, so the Outsiders was an interesting evolution. Um, long story short, uh, the work that we were doing at Camp Hill, and I've, I've been at Camp Hill Outside School Hours Care for about 13 years now, coming on 13 years, and we've sort of evolved that space myself and colleagues, definitely not a solo effort there, mm-hmm. uh, into a very, very uh, extensive and established Playwork-led adventure playground. We have about 250 to 60 kids on average every day, so it's a you know it's a pretty decent sized space um, to accommodate for that many children. And that sort of started getting a little bit of uh, notoriety, interest from other oshers and and other schools as well, um, and just people that were interested in play, I guess you'd say. And that led to a lot of uh, requests to visit, a lot of um, requests for us to come out and and have a look at other people's spaces and see maybe how they could be developed further. And, yeah, I mean, sort of in so facto, that led to us really actually having to sit down because there are only so many hours in the day and um, we love what we do because um, it's rare, I think, you can combine something that you're a genuine advocate for and all of a sudden there's actually a demand for it to the <laughs> point that you can make a, a job out of it. So we sat down at the table and, and worked out what that might look like. Um, there was a big emphasis on, on that planning, though, that we would never – not work at Camp Hill either, at least, you know, for the indefinite future, because I think for us, one of the most valuable aspects of our consultancy has always been in delivering playwork theory and then being able to flesh it out with, oh, and this is what it looks like. I did this last week. This yeah. happens in our playground. <laughs> um, and, and that's been important. I think for a lot of our OSH um, educator friends, we're putting our money where our mouth is. It's not like we wrote a book 10 years ago and we're going to tell you about it now. It's something that we're going to tell you about and go back and do this afternoon. Mm. Um, and I think that's always weighted well with with the uh, the other frontline educators of, of, of you know, Australia. Mm, I was about to yeah. say Brisbane, but I shouldn't say that because <laughs> we have, um, we've managed, we're lucky enough to have travelled um, far, far beyond uh, the borders of Brisbane now to share this mm. message and to support people with their spaces. But, yeah, Brisbane is obviously HQ. Yeah, but how incredible that you can, like you said, make make a living out of something you believe in so passionately and that's making such positive change for children. I just think it's it's inspiring for others to stick with what they love and particularly if it's purposeful because the work comes, I think, when people see the passion and they see the purpose. It's hard it to- does. And, look, it's been, it's been um, self-affirming as well because now that we're a few years down the track with the work that we've been doing with the outsiders, a couple of years anyway, um, we're getting the stories back and they're the stories that we were seeing at Camp Hill, but you didn't, you know, there was that risk of being privy to an anomaly. Um, mm. You know, maybe maybe this was just a, a magical example and very, very difficult to replicate, but in both OSH and school settings, 
we're hearing these stories. We're hearing stories about improved resilience, um, decision-making skills, social skills, and just fun. But just children's capacities being recognised for what they are instead of being limited, uh, which I think in a lot of spaces they are heavily limited. I love hearing educators describe to you something that a child built, but the the there's a sense of awe in the way the educator tells you. And, <laughs> and as soon as you hear that, you're like, great. <laughs> um, that's a cha- well, that's a changed person. They'll never underestimate that child anyways. Capacity and capabilities, again, they might actually help them extend on that and, and support them in growing instead of managing um, that <laughs> child, if that makes sense. Oh, that's a, that's quote of the episode already, you know, less than 10 <laughs> minutes in, <laughs> instead of managing the child. Oh, yes. <laughs> so for those who haven't had the wonderful privilege of visiting Camp Hill, and I am actually one of them, I still haven't been, you're only an hour away, and it's ridiculous that I haven't come to visit yet. At that some is of our ridiculous. Team, Nikki, see you soon. I know. I will, I promise, because... Some of our team have been and we've sent them like, please go go to the, you know, Nature Play Queensland, Osh Tours and all of those things because they're, they're incredible offerings and you're so generous in offering your space for the training and, and for people can't be what they can't see and you're, you're this lighthouse of what's possible. So from the photos and the videos and the things that I've heard, it's still not enough. Can you tell us what it looks like to, the, to someone who hasn't seen it before? Yeah, and look, I'll, I'll refer you to like social media as well to back this up at a later date. But um, Camp Hill Osh is interesting because when you first walk in, if there's no children there, which I think is a really important clarifier, uh, it, it does potentially look like a junkyard um, <laughs> because Paradise. those parts, when they're not being um, actively used, um, it's effectively what they are. They're arbitrary pieces of discarded objects of all sorts and uh, all kinds um, and, and they just sit there and we don't pack up. And there's many, many reasons we don't pack up that are important. So they are just sitting there. Um, however, it's always great to juxtapose that with viewing it when children are there because it's, it's an absolute hive of activity, of creation, of making things. And people, I like that, that explanation because the, the environment could be described as chaotic. But when you see children in the space, it's the opposite of because there's order being yes. made, there's structures being made, there's bases being built, there's machinery being um, constructed, um, and, and that's the, literally the antithesis of chaos, isn't it? That is yes. making things out of disorder, um, and I love seeing that in play. I love seeing the the, the you know in, ingenuity of children um, intrinsically, by the way, because you know when we leave it to be intrinsic, it's usually more phenomenal than we could have possibly hoped. It's a great space to work in. And, yes, you know, some adults still need to get past the aesthetic of, but you know, they're bits of wood and pallets and, use, you know, broken things mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and see what the children are doing, not just see the resources for what their subjective sort of suggests that those resources are to them. Yes, well, it's not very Instagrammable, Angus. So how how can we prove how good it is if, it, if it's not beautiful? Look, Instagram's a funny one. I, I, I talk a bit in one of the PDs I do on loose parts about Pinterest uh, mm. and loose parts and like, sorry, Pinterest, um, not having a go, but there's some beautiful, very Instagrammable or, or postable photos of loose parts. But I always encourage educators or play workers, teachers to ask themselves, have, do they think that children have interacted with those loose parts? <laughs> uh, because 
No, <laughs> in many, many, many <laughs> cases, they absolutely have not. Um, and, and that's a problem because that mm. really leads into this idea of adulteration. And if that's what the adult thinks the loose parts should look like to be nice or whatever the word is, um, they're going to try to direct it that way. And, and yeah. children probably aren't going to make that stunning African savannah scene. Um, <laughs> they're probably going to play out some seemingly mundane story about something that's happening at home or within their friendship group with those same loose parts. But that's actually what matters to the child and that's what they'll do. But it doesn't meet that, as, as to quote you, the Instagrammable photo because it's a little bit, Meh, maybe to the adult, but obviously if we understand play, we realise that that's very, very far from unimportant. Oh, yeah. I um, went over to visit where I grew up, the farm area where I grew up in South Australia over the holidays and um, friends are oyster growers and they have this, to my eyes and my children's eyes, incredible backyard, which is just all the old things that they've collected from oyster farming and farming and people you know, dropping boats there, my father included. And it is just the most incredible paradise for children. Like my boys, when they got, they're like, have you seen what they've got in their backyard? Mm. <laughs> and it is, isn't it? It's that. And what can you, I guess, again, as an educator, if you've not been around people, uh, around children, sorry, that utilize use parts and play, sorry, play with loose parts and just play, what can that look like? to, I don't want to say an untrained eye, but, you know, an eye that hasn't seen that before? Look, untrained eye, trained eye, I think um, it, it can look like a lot of things, but it's important to know that because children lay a narrative so deeply into their play, like it might not be immediately obvious. It, it could mm. be really nuanced and subtle but important and probably more so because we don't know. It's not something we've thrust upon them. Um, they're not playing a game because they were told to but it's something more more intrinsically relevant to the child in, in that place in that time. So, uh, look, honestly, a lot of loose parts play looks like very mundane things like I suggested. And I, I use the word mundane lightly because I don't believe <laughs> as, a, as a play worker that it's particularly mundane at all, but mm. it, it often represents real life. The, you know, they'll be building shops and houses and cubbies and bases and um having domestic disputes and um, selling, you know, leaves and rocks and whatever. Like it's, <laughs> it's not, it's everyday life, um, but it's just been imagined in, in, in whatever way that a child can imagine that as they learn more about life and they process those ideas. And when, when we learn to appreciate the actual incredible learning that's going on there and I use the learn, I'll use the word learning in the broader sense here. I'm definitely not talking about academic classroom learning, I'm, I'm referring to learning to be a you know, human being, um, that's where that stuff happens and has happened for a long time, I might add as well. It's not new. We definitely don't need to teach children to play. We just need to facilitate a space and, more importantly, time where they, they can do that. Can we touch on that, Angus, just briefly about the decline in free play? Yeah, um, absolutely. Look, this is, this is research that goes far beyond um, our own subjective opinions. It's, it's research done by the likes of Gene Twenge and Peter Gray, but there has been a documented decline in free play in children and um, particularly um, picking up after the 1950s. And, and that looks like a lot of things. That's because um, the school days become longer. The holiday period has become shorter. There are more extracurricular expectations after school and on weekends. There's more curriculum demands on uh, teachers and children, which gets taken home as well. Um, and 
there's also other reasons because roads are now wider and cars are faster and that limits children walking home and having that 15 minutes at the creek or the park that many mm. would have appreciated in their time. So there's not one reason um, for this decline, but there is an overall decline in free play. Um, so as a play worker, like we take that really seriously. We might be in an OSH context that actually has a framework that demands us to provide play and, and, and leisure-based opportunities um, we could be that antithesis, that pushback against this decline and we can really offer our space for however many hours we can for the children in, in a truly uh, playwork way, which is, you know, play being defined as intrinsically motivated, freely chosen and personally directed. Um, and if it's not that, then it's not play, it's an activity and there's nothing wrong with some activities if the children want to do them, but play needs to come first and um, that takes a bit of consideration because it does shake adults out of pre preconceived ideas of what um, I'm doing in inverted commas with my fingers here, but programs <laughs> need to look like, um, you know, 45 minute rotations of various activities to tick boxes <laughs> and, and, and meet a perceived notion of what the framework needs to look like, um, where it might not need to look like that at all for children to be getting all of those opportunities and more. Mm, that's That was going to be my next question. How, how do you find loose parts fitting into the framework? Does it tick all those boxes that we need to tick? Look, absolutely. And I mm. think if we're outcomes focused, we actually end up doing ourselves a disservice because we're looking for an outcome of five and we can our blinkers can go on and we can be fixated uh, yes. on that outcome. We've actually backed ourselves up by doing research on this, which was our first action research project with QCAN on the benefits of loose parts. But if afforded time, space, uh, and abundant resources, the outcomes will happen from the framework. That's <laughs> been my time, our place from an OSH point of view, mm -hmm. um, but very similar to being, belonging, becoming for the early years. The outcomes will happen and probably more times than you can possibly document if you're open to understanding the, you know, the, the broadness of play and, and the beauty of it. Uh, I just want to freeze right there and just have you just about say that again, but just to repeat, it was just it meet play meets your frameworks. Can we just go back to play? Yes, look, absolutely, <laughs> it does. Um, and but as I and look, it doesn't just meet the frameworks. It it often smashes them and does them a lot better. And and we actually lose. I mean, to go to my time, our place, and and, and the terminology in, in being, belonging, becoming is very similar. But if you're talking about play based learning, holistic practice, the development of agency. And these things don't happen in over-controlled environments, period. They don't. Mm, no. Free play, in intrinsically motivated, personally directed play, those things happen an awful lot if we know how to facilitate that and, and support it um, and provision a suitable space for it to happen as well. So another thing I think that we're perhaps missing is is that training and where, and where do we get that from if we're not getting it, you know, because some of our OSH play workers they're not coming from um, education backgrounds or they might only be at the beginning of their education studies or they might be from outdoor rec or somewhere else so how do we uh, instill this knowledge of play into our play workers and look that's been a big journey for us at Camp Hill um, because as you say a lot of OSH people are students of other disciplines and um, mm. we've we've really worked over the years to bring more people in that don't see themselves as uh, casual OSH staff who could be at OSH or the coffee shop and they're just there to fill in time between their uni degrees before they move on to their real vocation. We've worked 
hard to create a workplace that we believe is purposeful. And a lot of our staff have um, been retained for that for that same reason um, and have become um, in their own eyes and our eyes definitely professional play workers who will continue to do that in some capacity or form. Um, and that, that, you know, that allows time, to be honest with you, time to, to train and to deliver and more importantly maybe time for them to experience a lot of things in the play space that further their own knowledge because, you know, Playworks is a very intuitive practice and you can actually do all the PDs you want and that helps, but you still really need to experience and see things. Yes. And look, that, that's, that goes for a lot of things. That, that's how you manage risk. You, you, you can't without having some tangible experience in doing so. You know, destructive play is a bit of a buzzword. Um, well, mm. buzzword, but it's, it's something that people fear and they worry about in the loose parts, but you know, yeah, it's probably some, the and, biggest one, isn't it? When, when people walk in and they see little Johnny with a piece of wood from the pallet smashing something up, it's often, oh, you know, yeah, stop absolutely. That. And look, some and sometimes there's malicious destruction, and that's definitely something that can be managed. And there's a lot of destruction that's not destruction, and it's deconstruction. And children do that a lot. They really explore their space and work out how things are put together. And sometimes the way that you work out things are put together is by taking them apart. Do you have an example of that? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of examples of that. Um, yeah, there was there was one time where I was supervising children, a child at play, and I noticed from afar another child pulling apart a baseball that um, one of the play workers had been maybe silly enough to leave out in the space. We got we got to think about that as well in regards to why is that there if we don't want it to be mm. taken apart? Why isn't it in the sports equipment bag or whatever that <laughs> may look like? Um, and my immediate adult reaction was like to stop them because we didn't want to lose sporting equipment. But um, I tried to put my playwork lens on and, and simply ask, you know, what they were doing. And their response was beautiful. It was, I really, really want to know what's inside. And all of a sudden I did too. I don't know what's yeah. inside of baseball. Um, and that was, you know, that was the start of a, of a great relationship with that child too because I hadn't just come in and smashed their play out of the water. I'd validated it, if anything. And that was a good thing. But look, with this, with destructive play, whether it's destructive or deconstructive, my, my question to the educators and, and the playwork inspired out there is to consider that children will seek to innately pull stuff apart and explore how stuff is put together. If there's nothing they can do that with that you don't mind them doing that with, don't complain when they mm. find something that you do care about. Provide <laughs> something, whatever that is, old keyboards, whatever it is that you can wholeheartedly give to the space without the connection to it and let them pull it apart because um, they're learning a lot as they do that. And at the end of the day, they're also just feeling an innate need to do it and you can avoid making it a naughty or a good thing and, and provide mm. the opportunity. And you only learn sometimes the hard way as well, I think. We had a, a cart that we had, um, you know, one of the beach carts that we were using to haul the loose parts into a festival and clearly didn't park it far away enough from the loose parts section and it got pulled apart. Mm. But thankfully it didn't get ridden down the very, very, very steep hill. It was, you know, <laughs> it's those lessons where you go, yeah, right, okay, it, it's in and it's in the surroundings and it's, it's going to be used and going to be pulled apart. Yeah, because it can, it can be confusing otherwise. I mean, yeah. if, if you're going to give a space wholeheartedly to children, it's fine to say that. But then to not do it is really confusing, and and it once again stunts a lot of the um 
the creativity because straight away they're already second guessing like can I do this mm. um and, and and that can be a problem yeah we going back to that um destruction deconstructive play we again had the similar really similar thing where we just had three boys just just smashing just smashing whatever they had which again we didn't mind because it was all loose stuff but the commentary just to sit back and hear what they were saying to each other mm. was I've never been able to smash anything before. I've never been yeah. able to break anything. I've ne- I feel really strong or, wow, I feel really good. That was relaxing. And I just yeah. think oh, the things that we're withholding because we're so worried about it, like you said, looking, looking aggressive, the emotions we put, you know, conjured towards the words destruction, it's just we're not allowing children the freedom to explore those emotions and those feelings other than in say physical fights and wrestling and whatnot. Yeah, and look, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of evidence out there to suggest this isn't sort of this is quite embedded in our DNA. There's a play type called recapitulative play, which mm. suggests that in in our first sort of decade or a little bit less than, but roughly of life, children effectively play out um, their evolutionary history. And one of the sub elements of recapitulative play is, is the animal, and that's in experimenting with elements and dirt and rocks and sticks and that's often done in a destructive way and you don't have to do, look too hard to realize that it doesn't matter what continent you are what culture you're in uh young children in every part of the world get two rocks and bang them together until they break <laughs> them into dust it's, it's it's just something they do uh, and yeah. you could you could you, you could attach a destructive tag to that um and and that you know that would be sad because it's mm-hmm. it's a very very innate and it's also a tricky one because you know, uh, educators these days are very are very interested in getting the child's input into documentation. Yeah. But it's 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 hard to ask a child why they're banging two rocks together. They don't, they don't might not have the words to articulate why. It's it's it, it's it's deeper. <laughs> it's yeah, it's deeper than that. And mm. um, and and maybe they don't need to know why. Maybe that's not the point either. Yeah. Um, you, you don't ask a child who's swinging on metal bars. Um, if if they're enjoying developing their vestibular systems, like it, it, it's they they don't need to know that it's not it's not the point. Um, mm. It's hap- it's it's happening, it's happening, but um, it's it's not their intent, I guess. You know, and play is the intent. Yeah, and if we don't allow it, they'll do it anyway. But they'll do it behind parents' backs. I know I did as a child. You know, we had mm. a very cool, let's call it loose parts, but it was an old. I grew up on a farm, so it was an old farm tip. You know, there was parts and machines and all sorts but mm. we would go down there and and break bottles and whatnot mm. and it wasn't till my parents found it you know why well, you yeah. don't, we don't know <laughs> yeah we don't exactly it was, it was there and it was fun and we wanted to see what it would look like and and sound like and feel like and well, i don't know <laughs> yeah exactly yeah there's is yeah sometimes the the point of play isn't as obvious as that, there's, there's not three bullet points that kids can fire back as to why, and that's 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 an important critical reflection for I think anyone who's involving the children in the documentation process because you know you're only going to get the iceberg tip at best anyway uh, because in any play frame there's so much depth and subtlety and nuance that it's not going to be put into language for you. Our advice would probably be to under, like research and, and understand play better so you can just observationally. Uh, appreciate the amazing beauty that's going on within those those complex frames. Yeah, there definitely seems to be, I'm hoping, but it might just be our glorious bubble, Angus, <laughs> there does seem to be a real um, resurgence of the importance of play just as it is play. But 
it seems to be slow in some of the more, um, you know, I'm pointing fingers here and probably shouldn't be, but some of the private schools, <laughs> there seems to be an academic trend still that's really, really sticking because it is evidence-based. I guess this is a frustrating thing is that there is so much evidence about the importance of play. So why is it taking some schools so long to take, well, not, not take away the focus of academics, but put play up there with ac- academics? Yeah, I mean, that's a huge debate there right right away. And obviously, mm. when, we're, when we're working with schools, we try to lay out very, very early um, the absolutely fundamental importance of play to a successful brain and the successful brain that can then be taken to the classroom. My priority, to be 100% honest with you, is just not academics, but yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I appreciate a good Trojan horse and mm. um, the power that play can give to the brain um, that just is a lifelong gift then um, is, is unquestionable. So if we can lay that, that, that you know, that base early, um, I think you mentioned private schools and I, I just simply think that when you're paying them that much money, there's an expectation and that expectation is academics. It's not, it's not that any well-meaning parent would choose academics over well-being, but I'm just not sure if that question has been asked enough yes. anyway. This is my, I think there's this gap between the research and getting it to parents. I think many teachers know, but they're kind mm. of bound in the system. So how do we get this info out to more parents? That's a good question. And, mm. I mean, we can only keep advocating in that regard. I think parents could be the gatekeepers in the sense that they inevitably do choose to spend that money on academic yeah. prowess. Um, but, I mean, it's been a trend for a long time now that, I mean, parents are trusting and, and they're not necessarily educators. And with the push down curriculum and all those things, it's, it gets sold as this is to benefit your children. So, yeah. you know, I, I empathize with parents immensely because, you know, it, even, even if I try to take my play work out I'm, off, I'm like, oh, I, I guess that makes sense. Um, and it, it does take a lot of um, trust in play. And I think that's probably one of the biggest tricks there is play, play something that isn't Black and white, it, it's got to be trusted. There's a lot of faith involved in, in, in the process of play that it's going to work out for the better. Yeah. Um, for, from, a, from a trusting play worker who, you know, b- believes in the evolutionary value of play, I, I, it's easy for me because I can turn my lens to, hey, it's, what we've, it's how we've learned for 80,000 plus years. Yeah. Um, that's significant. <laughs> but it's, it's not as obvious sometimes to, to, to just say that. Um, and mm. as, a, as, as a throwaway comment. Let's continue on that because I, I think you've nailed it there. So somewhere along the line, you know, we went from, you know, play, 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 like you said, 80,000 years of play. Out or more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can, you, can you talk to us about that? Or, I mean, how political do you want to get? Because I ultimately. I love ultimately, it. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's lots of contributing factors, but, I mean, the society that we live in, uh, it's, it's a capitalist society. It, mm. drives, it drives people to be producers into that system. Uh, industrial revolution occurs. Um, they want to make useful units that contribute to that economy um, and education is the way to do that. Mm. Um, you know, that's, that's very, very debatable. There's lots of perspectives and points of view on that. But ultimately, um, that's where you decide to sacrifice something that at face value seems frivolous, although it entirely is not, um, and replace it with something that makes a, you know, a, a, a functional commodity. Yeah, factory-type settings um, for factory-type workers. Yeah. yeah. And that's, um, you know, that's going to receive criticism itself, that statement, but that's yeah. because I have, I've, I've taken a 
big idea and squished it into a little sentence for, for the point of a podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot to unpack there, but effectively, um, if you have data that points to the decline in well-being of children and the rise in the anxiety and depression of children, and you know that play uh, and flow is the antithesis to that, I would really challenge anyone to not take that seriously. Yeah, and I think that's the frustration at the moment, isn't it, is, is we have the evidence, it's there, and quite literally our children's overall well-being, like you said, it's not just mental, it's not just physical, the holistic well-being is at stake right now Yeah, and yet we're still and, f- forcing this academic push down. And it, Yeah, and look, the happy, a happy child if they're a straight C student or a straight A student, it's irrelevant because they'll go and do something great with that. An anxious, depressed child can be a straight C student or a straight A student and that's their life as well. So, you know, we've got to think about that. I think one of the things that hopefully will spin this is, is you know, there is a lot of research being done in the area, but particularly by some really brave and amazing schools. Um, I was only at Berenbar East State School yesterday um, and mm-hmm. that school's done some amazing research. They've extended their play times. They're offering... Uh, big chunks of play. They've now established three amazing forest and loose parts areas within the school grounds. Nice. Their data, uh, despite the fear, I guess, of doing that, which is, well, if the kids are in class less, how will they achieve more? Um, but you've got a, a lessening in aggressive behaviours, you've got an increased school attendance rate, and you have an increased academic performance in the classroom, all in oh. one. Um, so the evidence is coming out and it, from a, from a Southeast Queensland or Australian context, at least that will be highly relevant and digestible, mm. um, for other people who are on the fence. And I don't blame them because, you know, if there's not an evidence base or not, not one that they've seen that's relevant to them, it's, I guess, you know, you can deliberate more, but when this stuff does come out, it hopefully will, will get some of those fence sitters, um, off and into action. Oh, well done, Berenbar, for actually collecting that data because, like you said, it's huge. It needs to be contextual and people need to see it happening in their micro community to believe it, I think. You're 100% absolutely, right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and as I said, other, otherwise it does come down to the uh, the, the, the faith in, in play that, that this is a thing and it works, but that can take a little bit more of a nudge or lived experience, actually seeing that in the flesh, which is, you know, harder to just deliver in a PD. Yeah, well, that's what I'm, you meant. I'm an educator by trade, high school teacher, but it wasn't until I had my own children and delayed my elders from going to school where I went, oh, he's learning what he could and should have been learning in prep. Oh, yeah. he's, he's easy. And we, we unschool, we natural learn, whatever you want, whatever label you want to put on it. It was exactly that. It was lived experience. It wasn't, mm. and only through the lived experience did I then go down the rabbit hole of, ah, Right. <laughs> yeah. It all makes sense. This makes perfect sense. Lived experience is a really powerful thing, actually. Like most educators um, who have done any study in education know of Lev Vygotsky, usually through mm. the, the uh, zone of proximal development. But his last great theory before he passed away, sadly, was this idea of Perizovane, which uh, translates roughly from Russian into lived experience. And mm. basically the, the premise of Perizovane is that um, if there's an emotional connection to the learning, uh, the learning will, will will be achieved at an optimal rate. Uh, and that's a really interesting idea though because a lot of um, sort of Western education settings have bottled that as like if learning is a joy, it's better. Um, but that's not what emo- an emotional connection is. And, th- and that can be a real challenge for educators, particularly in playwork settings because uh, emotional connections could be frustration. It could be, uh, 
you know, a little bit of being upset. It could be, um, it could definitely be joy as well. Don't get me wrong. That's an emotional connection. But all the learning that, that occurs in those emotional uh, circumstances is going to be more profound if it's allowed to happen mm-hmm. as opposed to 25 kids sitting at a desk learning precisely the same thing with little or no real emotional connection to that experience. Yeah, look, my my youngest only learns the hard way, unfortunately for him and us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's, you know, is that hot? Oh, let me, let me try if that's hot. <laughs> you know, you said I'm going to do this. If, if you know, I'm going to, if I do this, this will happen. Well, let me test that theory. And, you know, yeah. that's how he remembers. It's not being told. It's not living through anyone else's experiences but his own. So sitting in a classroom and being told and reading from a textbook would not, would not have been the best way for him to learn at all. No, no. Mm, and I would argue it's the same for everyone. Yeah, and look, I mean, and you know, if that's your intrinsically motivated way of learning, maybe it is too. But it's definitely mm-hmm. just, it's just, it's just definitely not everyone's. And I think that's a, a question yes. of different differentiation that, that that needs to get asked. And I, I get it too. It's hard. You're in a factory system, and it's hard to differentiate 28, 25 children yeah. roughly into neat little categories. But guess what? In play, that's exactly what they do, yeah. and they all choose. They all choose the frames. The play frames that suit them, the play types that suit them, the lo- geographical locations within the play space that suits them, the personalities and the uh, other other things that they can bounce off. If it's multi-age, even better because there's bigger ability for you know divergent crossover there. And yeah, anyway, but I you know I could go on. But the point being that 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 myriad of opportunity that exists in in a very free play environment is, is just so much more diverse and dynamic um, than, than than a lot of settings that we put children into. Yeah, and I want to point out again, they're the environments that they have been learning, and the way our brain's been hardwired to learn for however many tens of thousands of years we want to debate evolution for the Homo sapiens has been occurring. Um, so it actually, when you flip it like that, it kind of like it does beg the question: Why do we think we can just change that in the last two hundred years, and nothing's going to happen? Yeah, and then clearly see that something has happened. Mm, yeah, <laughs> and granted, yeah. it might it might not just be the school system. There's other contributing factors as well. There's there's definitely many contributing factors. Yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah, but like yeah. The, like you said, the restriction of actually let's go into that the, the restriction of play and free play. You know, not just in school settings, but outside of school settings. Let's let's chat about that. Yeah, and look, that's. Yeah, I mean, that, that's 100% a fact as well. And I don't want to sort of even try to get up on a soapbox about that because I think it's been, <laughs> I, I, I think it's been done by the likes of Peter Gray and so on and so yeah. forth. But um, there just has been a decline of free play. And, you know, children don't really walk home as much anymore with their friends and play in creeks and parks. And I mean, I, I grew up in creeks, for example. Um, but if they, they finish school and it could be OSH or extracurricular activities, and hopefully that OSH gives some sort of affordance, some do, some don't, mm. um, then, it, then it's home and uh, you, you know, twin income earning families these days, it, it could be a case of quickly rushing through bath, um, dinner, homework, hopefully, and then straight to bed. Um, but very much at the requirement of schedule. Um, weekends, a lot of extracurricular activities as well. Or if at home, not necessarily allowed to go out the front gate and play with the kids in the street and mm. so on. So, um, you know, all these things do compound to uh, affect the brain and its perceived ability to be free. But look, that that suits some people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It does until it doesn't, I guess. And, and, and that's correct, what we're yeah. finding now, isn't it? Is that one hundred percent? Yeah. The, the cotton wooling is actually, you know, sitting's a new smoking. Cotton wooling is creating. Well, you know, again, correlation, causation. But you know, it's, it's the the anxiety and the depression and the not so much resilience and grit and and all those things that you know 
without labelling an entire generation um, that we're starting to see. Mm. Yeah, no, 100%. I like that uh, term. I like the, the way you phrase that. It, it, is, it is until it isn't. And, and unfortunately, I think in play, that's so often the case because, and take risk, for example, people put in a, a bar on risk because it's easier not to deal with it until yes. you have 12-year-olds that can't handle risk. Yes. Um, and and, and yes. that's, a, that's, a, that's a problem. So, um, and, and that, that is unfortunately, a, a, you know, a definitely something that is in, uh, embedded into the DNA of education at the moment is to avoid those harder things um, because it's safer, inverted commas, but yeah. ultimately, ultimately it's just not because we need kids to have to, to tweak their risk detection when they are, you know, three foot from the ground. So, you know, they, they know these things and um, the only way to do that, once again, to go back to that idea of lived experiences. And I'm not saying uncontrolled, chaotic lived experiences, no. but, you know, introduce these, uh, uh, the capacity for them to experiment and, and to explore these ideas. And decision-make um, for themselves. Yeah, and decision-make and risk detect and self-risk manage because one day there won't be an adult doing it for them, you know. So, mm. and, uh, yeah. anyway, but that, that's 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 a big topic as well. A lot of these conversations we're having already are probably podcasts in their own. But yeah, um, <laughs> but yeah, that 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 it is until it isn't is is just so profound. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, and we are seeing though those teenagers now that are scared to go and get their driver's license, like terrified of it. And mm. I just think, gosh, again, without labelling a generation because it's obviously not true for everyone and, and or even for the majority, but, you know, as a teenager that was that was a rite of passage. That was a huge mm. initiation into adulthood. So mm. despite the fear, there was many of us, that, that fear was no way was that going to stop us going to get our licence, whereas now that fear is stopping I would say more people than than it used to have. Again, no data there, so don't quote me on that. That's that's purely no, anecdotal I mean, from the teenagers that I'm seeing. Around. It makes sense, though. I mean, it's also the you know not, and it probably flows into the the, the unwillingness to get a, get a learners, but um, just the fear of being wrong is yes. is, is, a, is an increasing like in in play. You can be wrong heaps because it's play. Who cares? And then you just get on with it and keep playing. But if you remove that opportunity to be okay with being wrong and then trying something different, once life does get serious, if you're still terrified of being wrong, that that's a huge problem. And um, that that's absolutely the catalyst for a lot of anxieties that we have uh, in adolescence in those threshold um, years when they are coming into you know their teenagehood. And there's some pretty interesting data on that and, and how that, that fear of being wrong manifests um, in, in just apathy or absconding from even taking on tasks in the first place, which isn't healthy, yes. obviously. No, and we see that over and over in high school. You know, what's the point if I'm going to fail, miss? What's the point of mm. even trying? It's, mm, it's mm. not about learning or the journey or the process. It's about whether I'm going to get that grade or not. So, Yeah. And look, yeah. once again, to the loose parts, like we are talking about that junkyard aesthetic earlier, and I know we're bouncing back right to the beginning now, but um, that's one thing that uh, a junkyard loose parts environment does, and that offers children an opportunity to walk into that space and quite literally go, oh, I can't muck this up. I can yeah. just have a go. <laughs> yeah. um, look at this place. I can do no wrong. <laughs> and look, and look, eighty thousand years ago, or not even, but throughout our evolution, that that's just been the the woodland down the road because nature's quite quite chaotic and and and, and you know un, unruinable as well. Back back in the day, you know, sticks are on the ground and leaves are on the ground and whatever. It's chaotic, and you can do whatever because you can't muck it up. Whereas you know, contextually to children now, though, that, that live in suburbs and live in cities. It's, you know, contextually, it's great to have junky 
man-made loose parts because that is something that their brains can assimilate and attribute ideas and context to. Yeah. And and once again, just just have a go. And if they build a cubby and it falls over, that's fine. Have another go. Uh, and that and that that cycle just repeats. And then it's okay to be wrong. In fact, you learn more often from being wrong <laughs> than than you do from being right because yeah. you know why you're wrong. And and that's something a lot of kids don't know is why if you you can't learn to be right if you don't know what was wrong in the first place. Yeah, that's we're all just scientists. We're all just experimenting. You, you know. Mm. We often say, you know, Apple Apple iPhone wasn't born in a day, but no one called the Apple iPhone 1 a failure. We're <laughs> like, <Yeah>. on <laughs> version 12, but no one thought their 7 was a failure. It's, yeah, it's absolutely. It's evolution, isn't it? I think I just want to backtrack there. You just triggered a thought about um, and nature and how we used to be able to go into the woodland. It's, it's something that we're finding as a, you know, hesitant to call us an industry because, it, you know, anyway, sidetrack. Um, we're finding it hard to find locations where kids can be kids you know mm. council we can't chop and I understand that you know we put a lot of effort into regenerating these spaces you can't chop native trees I get that but even the weed species we can't dig we can't mm. um, erode to the point there's not even allowed foot tread erosion so yeah that's that's yeah and that's interesting and uh, it's it's a really there's a big Sometimes even within my own team as well, the, the, the idea of, you know, breaking plants and so on and so forth, it, it, it can be a hard conversation. But, mm. uh, I, I mean, I just remember too clearly being a kid playing in the creek and breaking branches off so I could make my little lean-tos and teepees and, mm. and, 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 and whatever it was. And I think that comes straight back to that idea of recapitulative play too. This is what we did. Um, I mean, loose parts have been around as long as children have been picking up sticks and rocks and playing with them and a theory, a theory about them was written in the 70s but they've always been a resource in play and throughout our evolution they've been natural objects so it makes sense it makes sense that children would gravitate towards playing with those things because a hunter-gatherer is eventually going to have to make real things out of those loose parts that's just how it works um and that's that's why i do value now and it's a debate between purest play workers and purest nature players maybe i've heard it i've heard it said like that anyway mm. that all resource you know resources are better if they're all natural and and respectfully i disagree because yeah, i think there, there's there's need there's a need for some real context on the resources because these are the resources that are going to have some sort of contextual relevance to the children and therefore will make the play and the play frames and the evolution of the play far more interesting for them mm. as they layer as they layer more ideas on top and there will always be some intrinsic connection because I think it's just hardwired in our DNA and evolutionary story that woodlands and sticks and rocks are still valuable. Yeah. I'm definitely, I'm, I'm not saying one or the other, but I think a healthy mix is is just contextually relevant to children and, and, and what's going on in their heads. Mm, and, and again, contextually, especially in urban areas, we are getting more precious of our nature spaces because they're mm. obviously limited and people are putting more effort into preserving them. So then where's the fine line going to be between preservation yeah. and children connecting to these spaces and, and you know, being able to stomp it, move it, squish it, you know, manipulate it? hundred percent. And then ultimately and what, what you have then is play spaces that end up doing the opposite of what they're meant to do That's because right. they actually lack affordance and the yes. children aren't allowed to engage with them. In, in, in our, in our uh, podcast notes, I know I mentioned, I mean, that's, that to me is one of the dangers at the moment of the term nature play in itself. And mm. I want to I I clarify that really carefully yeah, because I, 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 I love the idea 
of playing in nature. Never get me wrong about that. It's how I grew up. It's what I love. I think, however, playing in nature is a very natural, innate thing that we can understand. Uh, The danger, I think, of Putting the flipping the prefix there and making it nature play is that this is now a thing that can have an adult agenda. We mm. think this is a thing that's good for kids. We haven't asked them about that or observed <laughs> them in that. Um, it's something that can be programmed. Nature play can be on Fridays, and that's once again just not how play works. Yes. I've seen a lot of nature play spaces that are built, and unfortunately, they are made. And I, I'm just going to be straight up here uh, for, ad, for, for adults' agendas they because they're, they're pretty. They look lovely. I'm not even going to deny that they, they look, look lovely. They look great on Instagram. But, but. They do. They do. <laughs> but because they look so nice and they've cost in some cases a tremendous amount of money, um, children aren't allowed to engage. They're not the forest that kids well, used to play in. they're not manipulatable either. They're not manipulatable. Um, unfortunately, there's a bad habit of planting 20, 20 centimetre high plants, which are <laughs> not, 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 not a great idea if you ever want large volumes of children to flow through those spaces. But I get the idea is they're trying to recreate these natural settings where children evolve playing. Um, but that's not what they look like. That's not what um, they and, want. And, they, and it's certainly not how they interacted with them. Mm. So it's it's not that I favour junk over nature. It's just that we seem to be able to let kids be freer and interact with those spaces mm. more. Um, and we've got actually quite a large forested area on our school. We're lucky. And, I mean, no, no one seems mm. to mind that space. So the kids can really go crazy in there and it's fantastic. And it's amazing how quickly crazy settles into pastoral activity and, yeah. and they are very respectful and, and, and appreciate that space. To go back to that idea of destructive play, we actually see that happen an awful lot where children may go through a period of wanting to explore destructively or I'll go back to that idea of deconstructively, yeah. um, taking stuff apart. It often settles down though once they've played out that need. And yeah. then they start building, then they start making, then they start creating. Um, but if we don't let them push through it, we're just constantly telling kids not to do stuff. Um, yeah, and you, and we want to be places where we can we'll not even have to say yes. Like you said, it's, it's total affordance. It's, it's not a question of yes or no. It's, you know, mm. are you going to hurt yourself or anybody else? And even then, it's that's still not my judgment. Mm. <laughs> yeah. To a point, obviously, to a and, point, and, but... No, I know exactly what you mean. And look, they're, 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 that's the sort of practice that we work on with um, with educators and teachers and play workers is, is um, understanding that that process you just described there can also be dynamic. It it might be different from one child to another yes. because you, you you know these children and you know their thresholds and you know their uh, current physical competence and capabilities and social awareness and all that sort of stuff. So we don't have to have a blanket rule on wrestling because we know that those great those kids are great at it and they're learning yes. a lot but I'm going to keep a closer eye on um on these guys over here or maybe even join in because then I can have some more control subtly over the play without telling them they're naughty and all these really really subtle ways that we can get involved in play that supports the play instead of um adulterates it which just to clarify that word adulterate is a word from the playwork theory of the play cycle which implies the negative uh, outcome of adults' intervention into play. Mm, which is a beautiful segue to also uh, pulling apart the term risky play. Mm, talk, yeah. Talk yeah. just about that, Angus. Look, risky play falls into the same category there um, for me as nature play in the sense that it, it's fine. It's a, We all understand that uh, learning about risk is important, but if we think that there's this thing called risky play, it's, it, it's either A, something we don't agree with, so we're not going to allow, 
or B, something we can program on Friday and, and supervise really well. Um, but that's a very, very narrow, limited view of play because there's risk in all play. Yeah, children that's what are I was going, going to, to seek out. Yeah. Yeah. Ch- children, children are going to seek out risks and they'll be risk relevant to their journey. So a yes. prep child may seek different risks than a, than a, than a, than a you know, grade six child. And, and two also, prep also, children are, are yes, going to have different, yeah. Correct, correct, 100%. There's also the idea that when we, this is probably a bigger one for me at the moment, um, is that risky play because risky players become a bit buzzy um, when, when educators are referring to risky play now, they are almost always referring to physical risk. And I would argue that 80, 90% of risk that children put themselves into is social and emotional. Mm. And we can, we can, we can have our blinkers onto that and not be aware of that because we're so fixated. Look at the average school's, uh, risk management plans for the school. Um, they will be predicated largely, if not entirely, on the physical risk to their children. I want to suggest how many children uh, that we hear about now who are struggling with things like anxiety and depression and all that over over the broken leg that occasionally happens, but it's not the sum total of risks that children face. And to to label it as such, as I said, it either means that you don't believe Risk, risky play is good for children, so you don't have it in your service or setting or whatever that is, and that's kind of dangerous because then they, as you actually suggested earlier, they will do it anyway but mm. around a corner where no one's supervising and maybe there's not a first aid kit. <laughs> um, uh, or you, you know, don't do it and you ignore the fact that, you know, there's tremendous potential for them to get into quite seriously risky situations that are far more nuanced and subtle than climbing a tree or wrestling or whatever whatever that may be. Yeah, we even, and this is kind of a, a side note as well, when we're doing our risk assessments, we add, you know, the risk benefits to it. And the arguments that we've had with, you know, a sequer and things like that were saying that that's not relevant. Like, well, it actually is mm, because. It, well, I, I that's interesting because I think and that, that definitely comes down to who your assessor is then because I yes, think ours definitely. was. Yeah, ours was quite good at that. And I, I actually, I would challenge that so strongly. It disappoints me to hear actually from all the way, from a sequel that that would be the case because if you can't identify the benefits of conducting a risky activity, what are you doing? What, what's <laughs> like, the point like, of doing Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, right. what, <laughs> I, I, mean, I mean, quite quite, quite seriously, and, and we train our staff in the benefits first because if yes. you're going to be put into a position where you need to manage that, I mean, quite frankly, we tell our staff, if, you, if there's a kid in a tree and you can't justify that to yourself, tell them to get out yes. because we want, we, we want you comfortable in practice being able to actually understand the many, many, many benefits, both physical and emotional and psychological that are going yes. on in, in that play before you're just going to let them climb up a tree and, and maybe fall. Mm. Um, and, and, look, that obviously so rarely happens. But I was going to um, say, arguably, I would say it's the, the social and, uh, sorry, the psychological yeah. risk there for them. Like it's scarier for them rather than the risk of falling. It's actually the, mm. the fear of not being able to get themselves down, I think, is where they challenge themselves in tree climbing most. Yeah, and look, that's another one of the play types too is deep play and deep play is defined as the as, as play that where children intentionally put themselves into situations where they feel fe- fear. And that, that can challenge some parents as well. But ultimately, I hate to say it, it's that little bit of fear. It doesn't have to be dramatic. Yeah. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. But that's what makes children be careful yeah. as well. So, you know, we, we want children to learn caution and care and thinking where they're putting their foot next and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, that's that Perizabane, again, lived experience. Yeah, yes. 100%. Yeah, 100%. of the, okay, I can be scared, but I can still do hard things. 
Absolutely. And, mm. you know, so, and sometimes you can't, and that's also yes. resilience developing because that's great learning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. If we, if we, if we do it all for them, then all of those lessons are, are missed entirely. Um, so I guess to go back on tangent there, whether it's nature play or risky play, I'd really prefer to flip that to play that involves risk or play that occurs in nature or with natural resources. I know that sounds like missing words, but it, yeah, exactly. It puts play first as the priority. And if we deeply understand play, the rest of the stuff just falls into place. I love that. That's some really good reflection for us as a business too, because we, we absolutely, as you know, we harp on about nature play and risky play and all the plays because we're play advocates, but we need to just be play advocates. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and, and but that I also empathise with you because you've got to, I mean, you've got to speak a language that your clientele are going to appreciate, mm. and if, and therefore the kids can come and benefit from it. I mean, we've we've often, you mean, play work is 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 what we do, but I mean that 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 often needs a tremendous amount of unpacking. Otherwise, it just sounds like a word we created to put play in our, <laughs> and, 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 um, as as opposed to the the practice of play work, which has decades and decades of rich history. Um, you know, informing it. So uh, that that's an interesting thing as well. So, uh, you know, it, it is a it is a catch twenty two between being understandable, um, but but obviously holistic in in how we deliver that that service. Mm, yeah. Yes, it is. It is that real. You're right, hundred percent. And it's particularly when our whole aim is to to be play advocates the huge part of that is obviously educating like you said parents one of the biggest gatekeepers so how do you break that language down into a into something they can understand and and relate to and that that's the paradox I guess yeah Mm. and um and it's a yeah and look it is a paradox because once again to flip the coin again you know there's a lot of literature out there at the moment a lot of blogs a lot of media about the benefits of risky play and um you know, you, it, it's dangerous if it goes down a direction where, as I said, that's something that this service offers but this one doesn't or mm. can, can be programmed on a Friday um, yeah, at a service. But not allowed and, in, in the gates but out of the yeah, gates. Yeah, or- that's that sort of thing because it, it's it's creating this, this facade that, like, risk only exists there where it's managed and it doesn't just exist in all play. Yes. Um, so that's really, really important to appreciate that, it's good in a way that people are getting the gist that this is a thing that might be important, yeah. um, but the, the delivery of it's also critical, uh, if, if yeah. that makes sense. And I think that's part of, of the big education is, you know, part of what we offer is, you know, like you said, did you grow up playing outdoors and, you know, before the light, you could stay out until the lights came on and yada, yada, yada. Well, that mm. that's play, but for whatever reason it's now deemed risky play and and that's, that's mm. my... Ugh, I don't want it called risky play. It, it's how has this changed? And we know how, why and how it's changed so quickly, but just reminding people of, of the fact that yeah. some of us in this generation did, but again, maybe we were the anomaly as well in our generation. Yeah. I, I don't know. I feel like <laughs> there's a lot of, there's a lot of very normal, normalized things that are a bit taboo. Yeah, yeah and, there's, and there's there's some legitimate reasons for that too. I might add, like yeah. streets are wider and cars are faster, and you know there's there's there are contributing factors. But I think that only drums home for me the importance of settings like yours, settings like Camp Hill, where we can recreate that sense of freedom, that sense of ability to take on these challenges, these conflicts, these risks. Um, in uh, a setting that allows them to develop the mechanisms to overcome those things, um, instead of just in, instead of just avoiding them flat out. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, 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 and yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, Angus, this has been amazing. All right, well, let's move on to our rapid-fire questions. I'm going to change yours a little bit just because of, again, your context and your background. But first of all, what's your favourite loose part you've ever seen come through Camp Hill? <laughs> um, this is such a great question because, no, I know, no, 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 it's just funny because um, like we, we get asked so much as we're moving around settings, what's, what's the best loose parts? And it's so easy to default into the adult brain of like, oh, um, pallets and tarps and crates because, you know, and look, they're, they're all good loose parts mm. too, but it, it's always the most random ones. <laughs> so the, the most arbitrary, because if they're arbitrary and don't have any set of functions or purposes, then children can make anything of that. So mm. um, there was once a, from a curbside collection, a challenge that our staff did, um, someone brought in this this old pool filter and it was just this big plastic drum with all these little pipes sticking off it and holes in it. Um, and in, in, in the course of a week, that was part of a child's factory, that was a robot, that was all sorts of things. And I just loved it because it was, the reason I loved it, just to articulate clearly, is that if we tell people that, you know, people see our space, they see pallets, they see milk crates, they see bread crates, that's what they go out and get. But I would never have been able to tell, oh, you might want to look for some pool filters as well. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I would, local curbside. <laughs> yeah, I would never have had the capacity to share that without seeing it myself. So mm. it, I, my only advice for favourite loose parts, and I guess that was one of mine just because of how amazing, you know, how many amazing things it did in the space. But I think be really open uh, to being surprised. Um, get get the foundation fundamentals because they're all great for building and constructing and so on and so forth, but be really, really open. And if you can't think of a use for it, fantastic. Um, <laughs> because that, that, that just means it's completely ready to, to, to be anything. Yes. Yeah. Some of my favourite have been um, big umbrellas, but never used for umbrellas or, or mm, shades, yeah. just upside down and used as giant spinning tops and can't go past. I know it was really an obvious one, but the mannequins, kids just get up to some funny things. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they do. Yeah. Mannequins are interesting. And I should say can, funny, can, not favourite parts then. <laughs> well, they, they can be a bit creepy too. And I actually think that's, that's actually really, really, really valuable for play sometimes. It is. It's part of the appeal, I think. Well, maybe yeah. let's rephrase it. Was one of the funniest parts, one of the funniest things you've seen with loose parts? Uh, I remember, I've got a photo of this actually, it's in one of my PDs and there's, there's too many of these stories, but this, this was a particular, <laughs> this was a particularly good one because there was a, a log and this, this is a great example of how if things don't have a set use, children can really make anything of them. And there was a half a stump, like, so like a, a log that had been cut in half. So a semicircular prism, I guess is the term mm-hmm. with, with a little like blanket over it. And I had no idea what it was. I was watching the children play in this cubby and I was watching this stump and they'd clearly put the blanket on it. So it was a thing It was in, it was, a, it was a part, it was a prop in their play, no doubt. And it took me quite a long time before finally they put a little bowl of water and a ball in front of it, and that was their dog in the game. Oh, um, I was thinking it was going to be a toilet. <laughs> oh, oh, I've seen those. I've seen those too. Don't worry. Yeah. But um, yeah, it was it was just so interesting because in, in no shape, way, or form did that loose part represent a dog. But mm. the other the other loose parts put together gave the context that made me finally realise. Um, oh, okay, cool. It's a dog. <laughs> of course. What else could it um, have been? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then a very gentle pat to the log. You know? <laughs> oh, it's isn't it those moments when you go, oh, this is this is a yeah. great job. It's like you yeah. said, 
How do we call but it work? I, 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 another really good moment as well to uh, sort of suggest that I'm glad that I didn't butt into that play and ask them what the log is because <laughs> yeah. um, that would possibly have just destroyed that that play frame or even put the child in a situation where they felt a bit silly for using mm. a, log, a log as a dog where just a step, stepping back, broadly observing, appreciating the beauty of that imagination, That that's sort of where our practice lies. I love that you brought that up. That's really important. What's your favourite book of all time and why, if you can pick a favourite, or what are you currently reading? Oh, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I'm currently reading uh, a book called Adventure Playgrounds, funnily enough, by a guy mm-hmm. called Jack, Jack Lambert, and I'm, I'm loving it. It, it, was, it was recommended to me uh, on social media by a, an, another playworker in Australia called Mark Armitage, but I was, um, I've been reading it, and what I love about it is uh, Jack Lambert was a playworker in, in the uh, 70s and um, onwards from there, but he, he's worked in many adventure playgrounds, um, and he... When he, when he started, he was completely inexperienced. So what I'm getting out of that um, book at the moment is how well he describes his mistakes. Um, and I just think it's, it's, so, it's so nice because I've, I've been reading a lot of academic text around play at the moment and, and obviously that's very theoretical and, and, and evidence-based stuff. And that's, I need to know that too, don't get me wrong. So mm. that's fine. But this is, this is a story. This is a story about someone's experiences, dealing with challenging children, dealing with difficult uh, situations, environments, um, lack, lacking resources, like every single thing as a play worker I've come up against at some point in time. And it's really great just to hear the grassroots, um, the grassroots, um, you know, stories and recounts by, by this, by this guy who went on to run some phenomenal uh, adventure playgrounds in the UK that offered amazing opportunities for children. So that, that's what I'm reading now. Um, favorite book ever at the moment, and this changes depending on what I'm writing, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but, um, it's actually uh, Bob Hughes's. Um, uh, evolutionary um, perspectives on play. Um, oh, see, because, I haven't read that one either. Yeah, it's it's a bit gritty too. Like he doesn't. I, I've really I appreciate these books because it's allowed me to start really seeing. And I've even put to this, this to some of my writing, but you know, play work or play theory shouldn't be about justifying good and bad play, but mm. just explain, but just explaining what is play. Um, and that's that's really liberating when you get to that point. It doesn't mean that challenging play can't be. Uh, managed and interventions don't occur, but you can walk into those interventions understanding that, oh, this is just what kids do. Yeah. And, and and now we can have that chat as opposed to, you know, taking the empathy lens off and, um, you know, kids become bad kids because they're wrestling. No, no, they're not mm. because that's what children have always done always <laughs> in, every, in every part of the world. But it's, a, you know, so just being able to flip that lens to see play as play, nothing else, nothing more, not subjective, and, and go from there, uh, that, that's, that, that's a great platform. Oh, good. All right, I'm going to put that one on my list too. It's probably my favourite question to ask because I get the best mm. book recommendations yeah. and they're always right oh, up look, my alley. <laughs> I've, I've been, I was um, out of action for a week with COVID just in isolation and I, I, I bought a silly number of books so I can, share, <laughs> I, 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 can, I can share a lot more titles with you if you're interested. Yes, please. I'd love actually, that. Actually, you, you, might, you might really love actually, sorry, I'm, I'm going around in circles now, but a book I finished reading not long ago was actually just one called Memoirs of an Uneducated Woman and that's uh, Lady, Lady, Lady Marjorie Allen's memoirs and she effectively, I'd consider Lady Allen the most important pioneer of adventure playgrounds yes. in the world. Um, and, and hearing, you know, listening, reading about her life, sorry, um, and, and her absolute 
genuine passion for advocacy um, was was truly expiring. I'd have to say she's my greatest playwork hero, to be honest. Oh, wow. And again, isn't it funny how you can read about these people and kind of dance around these people, but um, I, I don't know her full story at all. Mm. Like, you know, pioneer and advocate and whatnot, but no, mm. that's cool. Yeah. I'm excited. I've got definitely it. worth checking out. <laughs> I'll definitely grab that one. And it's, it's those kind of things I think too, like like you said, once you've, you've lived it and you've read it, then you're so much more easily able to spout about it and, and talk to others about it. And, and that's mm. how we spread this message, I guess, to gate, gatekeepers, whoever we may be. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. All right. Where do you go, Angus, or what do you do to reset after a tough day? Well, I mean, my kids, I guess, is one of one of the answers. Um, if it if it needs to be more personal than that, I I, nice. I love fish. I love fishing. So getting out on Moreton Bay, just um, in the peace and tranquility of the of the water, is always. I've, I've always been a water person. I think whether it's a lake or an ocean or a creek, that's pretty, you know, close to home for me. But yeah, you know, even just watering the back garden. I know it sounds cheesy, but like just that uh, little bit of a uh, little bit of solace. Yeah, reset's a funny one. Like I feel the last twelve months there hasn't been a whole lot of reset. <laughs> um, but but yeah, no, I appreciate how important a good reset is. So um, mm. yeah, but uh, yeah, look, I mean, I know uh, speaking to the converted here, but I'd have to say on some level, uh, nature is a bit of a reset for me. Um, yeah. I've always mm. it always has been, whether it's a conscious reset or I just used to do that as a child. And I'm lucky to live down here on. On the, on the at the bay side because you can literally drive to the end of my street and at least see the bay and, and that can sometimes be enough funnily enough yeah isn't it, it yeah 100 percent understand i've i've been meaning to irrigate my front garden for so long but i think a huge part of the hesitation is oh well there goes my 10 minutes yeah. kind of, <laughs> yep. you know me my like you said that little me time that little tune out the, the time for me to process and think about the day or think of nothing is yeah it's valuable <laughs> Absolutely. All right, I'm pretty sure I know, maybe not the direct answer, but the theme of your answer of what this might be. If you had to choose just one thing to change about the education system, what would it be? <laughs> hmm. um, that's a really good question. And I think it's a big one. A developing a developing thought, but even through conversations I've had yesterday um, at Berenbar East, a, a belief that more of the curriculum could be ticked off or acknowledged by the teacher through observing natural processes of play um, mm. in, in, in environments that make it happen. Bearing in mind, and, and not to be critical to the current system, but this is how we've always learned. Uh, mm. It hasn't always been a didactic, explicit teaching method. It's been experiences and experimenting and trial and error and so on and so forth. I think there's a lot of potential and we're actually currently mapping this at the moment, which I'm excited to share in, in a short period of time, mm, um, particularly in the foundation years of the curriculum, if not foundation to grade two, there is an extremely large amount of potential in doing that. Absolutely. It's, it's always been this double-edged sword in my head because, once again, I'm not wanting to confuse education and play. Mm, mm-hmm. But once Trojan Horse, if teachers could observe more of these things innately happening, uh, and there's a lot of it, as I said, then effectively it just gives more chance, opportunities to ch- for children to learn this stuff intrinsically. And I, I do definitely wholeheartedly believe that if it's intrinsically learnt through intrinsic motivation, the learning is going to be more powerful. Oh, it's stickier. And, 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 yeah, and exactly, stickier, more, more well-learnt as a mm. result. Yeah. And like you said, the curriculum, that, that 
foundation prep, whatever you want to call it, to year two is in in my eyes could be so easily transferable. Like you said, for, through observation rather than assessment, ugh, yeah, and assignments. Yeah. Oh, that'd be I amazing. Do. Yes, and so that that would be a, a hope. And look, when I say a hope, it's it's these ideas are already being rolled around in, in some settings, so that's exciting too. Oh gosh, that's inspiring. That that's this is the this is the change. This is the and I know it feels like we're going backwards, not backwards, like around in circles to how it was. But that's the point. I think is when it's broken, don't fix it because maybe we're mm. not fixing it. <laughs> yeah, and you're right. And or we are fixing it to whatever the ends meet is, and maybe we need to think about what the ends meet is. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And again, who are we fixing this for? Are we actually mm. fixing this for like I think we are what you're doing there in that research is is hopefully making things better for the child but again we're still stuck in that cycle of assessment for adults I think which which that's the next level again but we've got to start somewhere and I think that's a fantastic place to to start that would be mm. incredible mm. I agree <laughs> excited I can't wait to to read about that and Angus, where can we find out more about the Outsiders work and what you do at Camp Hill? Outsiders has a Facebook page. Um, we do keep that pretty well updated with um, who we're working with, what we're doing, and other you know sharing of blog pieces, ours and other people's um, that are relevant. So please definitely feel free to check that out. We've also got a website, which is just www.theoutsidersplayadvocates.com. That, that has our blog on it and what services we offer. Camp Hill Outside of School Hours Care also has a Camp Hill Outside of School Hours Care Facebook page. That's obviously very different to, to outsiders. It's very centric to what we're up to at Camp Hill, but that, that can be pretty interesting for people mm. who might want to explore uh, what a space can look like, particularly with Osh being such a hugely growing market. Mm. What a space! What a space that accommodates you know well over two hundred and fifty children can look like because mm. that that's a that's a new thing to to a lot of regions. Um, you know. Osha's over 200 used to be quite rare and they're becoming more and more common mm. as we as, as we as we go on so that creates enormous challenges within school and Osh communities so it's it's worth having a look at you know rethinking what that could be mm. um, but yeah they're, they're, they're the they're the places I'd go to have a look amazing Angus and to the outsiders team thank you for being advocates for children and for play thank you for being lighthouses for what spaces can look like and um, it's so inspiring to speak to like-minded people and can't thank you enough for coming on the show no thank you heaps Nikki appreciate it thank you pleasure Oh, what an inspiring conversation. I really love the reframing of destructive play to deconstructive play. It's funny how those tiny semantics can make a real difference in the way that you view something. And I'll really be thinking more about how we at Wildlings can shine more light on the word play rather than compartmentalising play into risky and nature play. I know that's our niche, but it was really thought-provoking how even though we do it daily, how using the terms nature, play and risky play, how that's, that is pulling apart the real work of just play and, and enabling people to say we do risky play on these days and nature play on these days instead of just letting children play. I also really love the idea of schools risk assessing social and emotional risks such as bullying and academic pressure, not just physical risk. 
wouldn't that make for some really interesting risk assessments in schools? I truly would love to see what kind of control measures schools could put in place to minimise these risks. And I love the idea that maybe seeing these risks written out on paper and these control measures coming together to think of ways that we could minimise those social and emotional risks because they are actual threats to our children's social and emotional health and how in turn coming together to spend time on those things would in turn create more time and money being spent on these issues rather than just the simple top-down academics. Super inspiring stuff. Speaking of inspiring stuff and lighthouses, if you would like to be a play champion, whether you're a parent or educator, why not head to wildlingsforestschool.com forward slash free dash downloadables to get our free outdoor spaces checklist printable and advocate for a loose parts or outdoor learning space for the children at your school or centre. We can only do this together and the more of us advocating for play in our schools where children spend the most of their time and in centres, the more likely it is that we'll turn the tide. So thank you for being a lighthouse. Thank you for being a champion for play. And until then, stay wild. Um.